Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. If you haven't yet given us a five-star rating and a positive review, pause this recording and do that now. I am Kirk Haberman and I'm a church musician. This is my brother, Chris, a priest. Chris, how are you? Kirk, I'm great. Having a great week. How are you? I, I wasn't sure if I- Right there. That's, I was not sure if I was like gonna- a Hemingway novel. If I was gonna uh, go on to, to talk about my week, but I know you you had uh, just a, a crazy and exciting weekend. I want to hear about that. Two services of lessons and carols. Yeah, when uh, I know that that oddly doesn't sound um, impressive, but it's so much energy and so much eighteen work. anthems. Are you kidding me? Yeah, maybe not anthems. Yeah, yeah. mix of anthems and and mm-hmm. carols. Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 our church choir, our parish choir, All Saints, Anglican Church, Cranberry Township, Pennsylvania, we uh, did something unusually historically ambitious for us. Actually, it's not historic. There was one time that we as a choir, I think you were involved in this, we sang in the cathedral for an ordination service. That was a long time ago. This is the first time in our current iteration that we have taken our show on the road, so to speak. And uh, we, this was ambitious. Uh, this has been a difficult time, I think, for a lot of churches. I don't want to overshare, um, but our church has been through been through a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, the 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 COVID stuff where everyone's kind of contracted, um, you know, lost probably about forty percent, um, and and we everyone's kind of wondering where are people, where are the people that were on the margins, um, but but more than that, we had other stuff that happened that that really knocked us to our knees, and. Um, one of the odd green shoots and evidence, pieces of evidence that to me um, absolutely fortified my soul and, 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 and let me know that God had not abandoned us was the emergence, oddly, of a really talented choir, um, really out of proportion to the size of our parish. And um, so I have, I have thought and prayed and daydreamed, God, what do we do with this? And... Um, uh, in the summer, I started to daydream about what if we, because we do have a neighboring parish that is a on the historic registry of buildings. It's got Tiffany windows. Um, it's stone. The acoustics are, uh, are unbelievable. Uh, it's got a historic organ that was just, um, a lot of money was poured into it and just redone. And I could picture it with pine bows um, in the evening with us 
um, uh, in, in the front singing Christmas carols, and I thought that would be amazing. And so I met with uh, met with them in August, and we uh, we they liked the idea. And Christopher, I, I you 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 saw a recording. You saw what we what we did musically. Um, I, we had would I, I think looking back, I had no business um, putting together something that ambitious. <laughs> there were way too many anthems, and a lot of them were difficult and took time. Um, and so I really had a um, an impressive time commitment from the choir that they gave me. Um, I really beat them like a rented mule over the course of several months. And um, I, I humbly submit, I think I think you can tell it when you hear them. They, I think they sounded pretty good. And they sang some some fairly tough stuff pretty well in a lot of it. And so we sang at this neighboring parish, um, Christ Church, New Brighton, um, on Saturday night. And then we, uh, we, we did it in our church on Sunday, um, a festival of nine lessons and carols. And if you don't know what that is, Mm. Uh, this is it's a it's a fun um it started in the church of england almost exactly 100 years ago i think 1918 right 1920 it was made famous there um they they did not originate it but yeah yeah and so the idea is you take nine gospel uh, nine lessons from the bible that basically basically trace a grand arc from man's fall from grace in genesis 3 and then the final lesson is John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, and it traces the grand arc of salvation history. And then um, musically, you have some latitude, what you want to do um, between those readings. And um, it's fun, Christopher. I had enormous um, fun in, in like a difficult kind of academic and prayerful way, um, thinking about what music would be a good fit for the readings, for each of the readings, for the choir and for the congregation, um, what matches our, our skill level that will kind of push us without being beyond what we can do. And it's fun. I, I like to think that good choir directors try to do a good mix of stuff that congregations mm. know and are right. completely familiar, right? Like, but also, let's, let's try something new. Let's add yeah. to our corpus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A chance to add, to add to the repertoire. So I think we did a bit of that, and I'd be, be curious maybe to hear kind of what, what what you thought of that but anyhow that was that was a lot of fun um there were a couple of um i mean be, because we have uh, children composed uh, most of our treble section um uh there there's an unpredictable x factor <laughs> that especially when you have uh like large public services um at at other venues you, you don't quite know what's going to happen um my middle son simon um, at one point I looked over and I saw that he was like dancing and by dancing, I don't mean um, like historic dancing or like choral dancing, but like, I, I don't know, like, like hip hop dancing during um, a, a particular carol. I forget what it was. It just means he was comfortable. Um, there was another time when he, he, oh, listen to this. He forgot his folder on Saturday night, for, forgot his folder at home. And he was to sing the solo uh, for the first verse. Of once in Royal David City, which is traditionally it's a boy, it's a boy solo. Um, by the way, did I share with you there was a there was some rivalry over that solo. Uh huh. Um, you did not. Biden wanted it, and um, and uh, and and I couldn't let him do it because uh, he pulls us sharp. So the the first verse is a solo, and the second verse is congregation a cappella. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have people that are singing that that can maintain right. Key right. major. 
because if the organ comes in in G major and you've like migrated to a different and, key right, verse three, right. <laughs> it'll be like a sudden train wreck. Which um, which Brighting or which Simon kind of did at All Saints. At all, it, yes, he did migrate. That. Yeah, when the piano came in, it was like, oh, okay, here's the key we're in. Yeah. He oddly went flat. You know, usually kids go sharp because they're kind of like antsy and high energy. Yeah. Um, but he forgot his he forgot his folder, and so um he was looking off of uh, someone else's folder. Um, but the way that the um, the chancel was set up at Christ Church, he was like facing directly away from the congregation. So I, I while I was conducting, physically tugged on his kata to like get his attention, to get him to look at me, um, thinking that I was doing it surreptitiously. Well, evidently, this was an object of great humor and amusement to like a dozen different people that came up to me and were like, I thought it was great that I, I'm able to like physically grab children while doing, directing the choir. In the meantime, well, Kirk, uh, once in a world, David City is is always the opening song at um, King's College, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Cambridge, and uh, I believe uh, the the soloist is selected immediately before, yes. right? It's like no one knows who's going to do it, and they're like you, and and um, sometimes being kind of put on the spot. Um, sometimes, uh, as great as singers as they are, even the best sometimes have hiccups here or there yeah. but it's just kind of interesting because it is a solo and my understanding it, is that they do that to um, avoid the anxiety avoid the yips yeah so that so, like <sighs> some kid just doesn't let it doesn't eat at him for like sure for hours as he realizes like i don't know is this too big for me well yeah. kirk one of one of my favorite christmas eve traditions is um to turn that on at 9 a.m central uh, it's on public radio uh the live worldwide broadcast from king's college cambridge it's a wonderful thing to have, to have the bulletin up and to read through it, yeah. but also like knowing that you and dad um, across the country, um, mm. dad who's 500 miles away and you who are a thousand miles away, we're all listening to the same thing. And, and generally if, if there's a, a new song or maybe if they don't sing Pearsall's uh, in, <laughs> right. in Duce, Jubilo, um, like, we'll, you know, we'll, uh, there's a series of text messages between us. That's, that's one of my favorite traditions. It's, it's very comforting and, and uh, very, just devotional to, to go through this arc of scripture um, just uh, with, with uh, the, God, what's the word? It's not crescendo, but just like with the, um, the summit being um, the prologue to John, which we are going to read right now. How about that for a transition? I love it.
today we are talking about the French Dispatch, Wes Anderson's 10th movie. Um, it was slated to be released last year and delayed due to COVID um, and uh, came out, oh gosh, in October, maybe? It um, The cast is a, uh, it's just an embarrassment of riches, Kirk. Yes. <laughs> to name a few, Benicio Del Toro, Adrian Brody, Tilda Swinton, Leah, Leah Seydoux, um, Francis McDormand, Timothy Chalamet, Jeffrey Wright, um, Stephen Park, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, just an outstanding uh, cast. Uh, this movie uh, is uh, not only, this is quite different than his other movies. So I think we can start with like what's similar is that it's it's highly stylized. Um, uh, you know, the opening where we see this waiter um, prepare this tray uh, of drinks, right, Kirk? Yeah. And like, and it's swiveling and, and uh, I mean, that is just classic Wes Anderson. Um, and then, and then and we see the dollhouse action. Dollhouse. Yes. Right. Yep. I'm sorry. Up to the You're top. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so we have the, the, the style, all the style of, of previous uh, Wes Anderson films. Um, but this one's a little bit different in that we have dis- distinct chapters that don't um, necessarily, like they, they do work together, but they're, they're fairly distinct. Where in in his second movie Rushmore, um, we have, um, I think title cards uh, with different chapters, like maybe spring, summer, or whatever. Um, but it's all kind of this coherent story, beginning to finish, of Max Fisher on many things. Where here, I mean, it's we, the traditional acts of a three act play, essentially. Yeah. Like Shakespeare yeah. would absolutely recognize what he's doing. Yep. Right. Where where here, um, this is an homage to uh, basically the New Yorker, um, to an era of of journalism um where a, a this is a, a french dispatch is a fictional journal that takes place in a city of france kirk did you like the name uh on we on we on we on yes, <laughs> yes on, i did love that um and in in france um you know the, the opening uh uh vignette i don't know what we call it um the opening uh, they're like three mini mini movies, and uh, the opening um, is uh, Wes Anderson, the cycling reporter, and it's kind of like him doing this profile of the city, um, kind of like uh, you know a gritty France that is, is filled with um, you know kind of nightlife and crime and all sorts of things. It's it's um, typical uh, an article of, of an era, a certain era of the New Yorker. Um, Kirk, how do you want to how do you want to talk about this film? I've kind of introduced it. Um, how do you want to talk about it? Yeah, um, I mean, let's lay a little bit of groundwork, and then yeah. then I, I'm 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 more than happy to like talk about various scenes and 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 hear what you what you appreciated about it, and then maybe we can probe some themes. But um, it the the plot, insofar as there's a plot at all, is that um, it's run by this. <laughs> larger than life editor played by bill murray his name is something howitzer like it's basically like the horowitzes right like arthur howitzer jr and he dies suddenly of a heart attack and his will in his will it says that the newspaper is to cease publication immediately i'm following one farewell issue and that issue will have three articles from past editions that they're republished along with an obituary um, and so the opening is is just we kind of 
all the writers are together. You, we kind of meet the writers, right? Yeah. And the writers are, like you said, an embarrassing riches of characters. Yeah. Um, and we kind of get get a brief glimpse of, and they're they're really journalistic caricatures that are leaned into heavily in a fun, super fun way. Um, there's like the journalist who is somehow on staff and it hasn't published anything in, right. in years and years and years there's yeah. a journalist who expenses everything and like <laughs> drives the editor crazy like it's like why did you have that for lunch <laughs> and like the secretary at the desk is like should i include that too he's like fine like dang it her writing is too good not to her like i can't i can't afford to lose her or something like that um uh there there also is that there's a there's a little um friendly nod to kind of the gravy days of yes uh, of how, like how newspaper budgets didn't make any sense just because the, everyone was sloshing around in money yes and yeah. like obviously there's zero money left in journalism now but like right I mean, or, or or magazines yeah where right. where boy like there's no ad you, department that's like calling businesses like to get the you know two-page ads that you know fund. well and, and like the gravy days kirk where where um a, a writer, a staff writer could be like, I would love a trip to, you know, fill in the blank. And so they would like find a reason yeah. to like write an article to like yeah. travel to Switzerland and like sample chocolate. And, and like, it's totally covered by everything the, that's the... expensed for what? Yes. 1200 words, 800 words. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the result was amazing writing, but yeah, like th those days are long gone. Yeah. No, no, I'm not, I'm not dancing on that grave. Um, right. That kind of the long form essay. Mm. Um, you have to kind of look long and hard for that. There's some, uh, I mean, there, there are a handful of publications that are still trying to do that. It's just really hard because like the way that the, the, the economics of it are set up, like oh, there's sure. just no advertising, advertising budget, I think fed all that stuff now. And, um, well, and not to say too much about this, but what was yeah. that, what was that movie? Was it a Spielberg movie about the, the kind of the cover up of the, the Boston abuse. I, I, I um, never had the heart to watch it, but yeah. Okay. Um, Michael Keaton plays the lead. Yeah. That, I think, yeah. yeah. And, and the, the name of the movie is basically like, oh, what is it? it? It, it describes like this outfit, like in the basement of the Boston globe that, um, that like will work for nine months on a story. Like they've got the staff of writers, like six or seven yes. people that like they spend months researching and chasing down a story that may, that they may not publish. Like, right. and so this particular one, I mean, it took them many months to assemble and, and to get the research and to, to work out a story. And so like this outfit of like six reporters or whatever, they may publish like three or well, not three or four, but like maybe publish like a dozen stories in, in yeah. a year, you know, and, and they would, they would be on the stories about the same thing. Like, um, so it's, it's just interesting. Uh, it's sad that, uh, that newspapers no longer do that. Long form journalism was probably never financially remunerative. Um, and yet it's amazing that it was recognized as worth the while, like right. all the other garbage funded that stuff. Right. Like right. sports right. and yeah, all the other pages funded the ability to actually have that kind of higher, higher art in um, the pages of a popular um, popular organ spotlight yeah. i believe is what it was spotlight right that's right yeah. that's right yeah so so you asked how do we want to talk about it? okay so that's that's what it's about and then in this final issue you have a reprint of these three articles right and we can we can talk about the the, the three articles a little bit um the the first one was was obituary was that the owen wilson i don't have it up <laughs> no, the cycling reporter was um, okay. That was the first. The article. cycling tour, um, yeah, yeah. Of of Onwe, 
Right. And on we pickpockets alleyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's also, yeah, I mean, I guess we, we could say something about um, like the, the interesting relationship between um, America and Europe. Um, you know, I've only been to France a couple of times. Um, you know, maybe some of our listeners have been more, some haven't been at all. Um, but there's, we have a sense that like, um, there's since, I don't know, was it Hemingway that started this, Fitzgerald, that kind of World War One generation, we have this sense that like, a writer has to go through a phase where he is like on like a crappy one room apartment, like in the, in the fifth level in some French city, like writing about some student revolution, right? Like there might be, that might be grounded in reality. Like France tends to have like lots of strikes and revolts and stuff. Um, but this movie leans into that in such humorous and heavy ways. Um, so, so we have, I mean, we could talk about the Owen Wilson um, one first. He, you said it leans into the grit. Um, do you, at one point, Bill Murray's character, Howitzer, the 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 editor, says like, "Didn't you have any fun? Like, can you talk about what what does he say? Do you remember he asked him to talk about like, did you see like children playing? <laughs> <laughs> and he wants to only like, have the gritty stuff. Play? <laughs> and he's like, that's not what I want to write about because <laughs> he's like, he's writing about the nightlife and pickpocket alley and yeah, getting like like low lives and the women of the night um, on, on street corners, you know, at 2 a.m. or whatever. And um, and yet it's just delightful, right? That's this whole, there's this whole genre of like Americans going to Europe to like write about that stuff and, and see that stuff. So that was, that was fun. Um, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to move on to the next one. The, was the next one the concrete masterpiece? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably the best of the three, I think. Because yeah. it's the weirdest, the most trippy, and the, hu right. the humor, the humor, the payoff is um I, I, I couldn't breathe. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> but but paint the scene for us, Christopher. So there's this art critic, Tilda Swinton. I, I told you to Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, Kirk. I <laughs> I don't even know if if this is it, it just has to be experienced, right? Yes. It's the weirdest thing ever it's as if she's giving this lecture it's presented as a lecture um <laughs> anyway so there, there's the humor of of her telling the story <laughs> yeah. and then you go from that and then you jump into the story um where you have adrian brody um white collar this, criminal a white collar criminal who realizes there's this brilliant artist in and so he the brilliant artist is this homicidal maniac played by benicio <laughs> del toro and um, it immediately tries to essentially lock down his like future IP, right? Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and, and successfully does. doesn't want money. He wants what, like 60 cigarettes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> to hand over his like- Because he's a homicidal maniac. Money. Like it's, it's, it's just like his currency is, 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 he doesn't care about francs or dollars <laughs> or whatever, right? Um, and then there's this bizarre relationship with, with his um, jailer. <laughs> And I don't even know if we can even describe that. It just has to be witnessed, doesn't it? Yeah, yes. I because I don't want right, like to. He's a truly dangerous it. man. He's like in a straitjacket. Yes. And then whatever, like once a week, she lets him out, and she poses for him. Well, he like does this like next level, 
you you can't tell. Let's just say all, it's, if it's a fraud yeah, or if it's if he's really an artistic genius, right? Because because you you look at what he's painting, and you look at her, and it's <laughs> let's just say it's it's abstract, right? Right, right. Yeah, but she sees it like she recognizes like she thinks he's brilliant. Genius, I don't know man. if Adrian Brody recognizes he's brilliant or if he just thinks he can sell him as being brilliant, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, because he's he seems to be cynical about modern art. Yeah, like he he meets with some some other colleagues, and he's like gentlemen i've seen the future and it's not and he points to like three paintings around the room it's not that it's this and and they're like but is it good he's like i don't know does it matter (laughs) we're all going to be millionaires (laughs) i mean isn't that the essence of the scene right so like you kind of go through this story not knowing if it's totally a swindle but keep going go ahead and and he's a homicidal maniac so so like um he doesn't really care, you know, if, if Adrian Brody makes a buck or right. makes nothing. And so right. there's tension there and it's very funny. And it turns out, should we, should we say what, what the result is? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, this is um, like a, like a, an intense spoiler. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they, they, they bring in all of these um, guests and, and, and there's like an art show in the prison. That takes um, an enormous amount of greasing palms to even yes. get to have happen. Right. To, like, to come guard, look at this work that he's been working on forever champagne caviar yep <laughs> and they review they unveil these the, the series of frescoes it's amazing that, right it's amazing it's it's phenomenal it's massive one one problem kirk they're like deeply embedded into the prison walls they're never coming out <laughs> <laughs> And they the are Adrian Brody. It's like some wheelchair bound old lady that like goes, knocks at it. And like, she's like, wait, these are frescoes. And slowly the whole room comes to it. Like it's super quiet. And Adrian Brody says, excuse me. Uh, these are frescoes. They're four inches underneath. <laughs> what, what did he use? Glass or whatever. Like they're, they're into the concrete walls. Yeah. Yeah, and and you're not I you're mean, not this... grabbing those off a wall and bring him to museum. Nope. <laughs> so he like flips out and it, like he's going to attack this homicidal maniac, right? The serial killer, like he wants to kill the killer, and it becomes this really stylized, entertaining yes. fight amongst like effete uh, <laughs> art, like Brahmins art. of, yes. of the yes. French art circles in the middle of a prison in this <laughs> island of safety. And then suddenly, like the prisoners, like uh, um, uh, the prisoners, why why are the prisoners upset? They're upset, and the prisoners break into it. And it turns out, um, what? Uh, well, we shouldn't say anymore. It's it's fun. Yeah. It's, a really it's it's wonderful, humorous. wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. The the, uh, the next one, the next vignette is um, it's revisions even more and abstruse, if that's even possible. <laughs> it explores Christopher this unusual genre in cooking, right? No, 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 no. Before that, we have oh, the okay. the um the Timothy yes. um Chalamet. Yes. This you know, like I don't know. In my mind, there's this wonderful cliche of like, you know, the 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 commie, you know, right. French uh, university student who d- does who right. wants With to do a nothing. Weary look, smoking a cigarette in his bed as he writes some tract about the evils of property or something. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> and then like protests and, and um, so like there's- a barricade burning furniture in a street or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and uh, 
And um, so he, what he has is he has a Francis McDormand. What is the relationship there? I don't even remember, Kirk. Unfortunately, it's been a while it's since twisted, I've seen this. Right? Yes. She wants yeah, a but story out of him. That's what. So she she's, she's a, a journalist, an experienced uh, woman yeah. out of her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so that. Um, yep. That's uh, that's the next chapter. Do you have any much to say about that besides it just being very amusing? This this idea of this this prototypical French student who who really doesn't want to do schoolwork, but wants to like write manifestos and, and protest and, and, you know, well, so go to battle with Wes the police. Anderson has the ability to have fun with cliches. Well, yet making um, the, his particular character so quirky that they're, that, that, that a really unique individual emerges from the cliche, right? So Timothy Chalamet's, so the ostensibly the reason for the protest is they want, they don't want um, gender segregated dorms, right? But but it, it becomes quickly very clear that it's just like the French student's desire to like have a season in their life where they, they barricade the streets and right. demand for like the complete disintegration of society, right? So, but like his girlfriend, uh, Timothy Chalamet's girlfriend, is this is this sort of French caricature of like this um, um, uh, enlightened, um, steely rational um fierce independent woman um but she is so funny like she all of that stuff is cranked up to 110 percent and then there becomes to be there's there's actually jealousy between her and francis mcdormand which which like cracks the um cracks begin to show um in her steely resolve right because she actually kind of maybe likes timothy chalamet all that stuff is really funny, and 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 so the way what the way this is resolved is through like remote chess or remote checkers, right between barricades, like yeah. So yeah, it's it's weird and funny, <laughs> um, and like, is it making fun of the French or is it loving the French or both? It's I hard think to it's say. kind of both. <laughs> yeah. And I then want to talk about this last one. Yeah. yeah, the last one, the the private dining room of the police commissioner. <laughs> We ha have, again, the way that they tell the story is we have Jeffrey Wright and Liev Schreiber. Again, uh, an embarrassment of riches. These these performances, Kirk, are amazing. And, yeah. like, doesn't, that, doesn't, like, Jeffrey Wright's performance in this make you, like, wish he was in everything? Yeah, where's he from? Are that, just his dialect and his affect. Um, I just wanted to, like, um, I wanted his southern drawl for, like, the next 48 hours. <laughs> Like, and he and so, leaned into it so hard. So go ahead. He's doing like like kind of a James Baldwin type thing. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, so we get there, that interview and then they'll cut from that, from them describing it to um, this moment earlier in his life. How about that, his strange uh, ability? Right. He doesn't have a photographic memory, but he has a what? Phonographic or logographic or he, he, he can remember every single word he's ever written. Yes. So he's asked on this like, 1972 style talk show like almost like um like william f buckley's firing line like, right um to prove it that he actually has this ability and, and he and goes back like, through the like, years okay, and name an article any article at random and the guy's like okay how about this one and he just begins he like recites yes. the entire article and we and we <laughs> move into that 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 story and again more more Great stars with good performances. Um, Stephen Park, Willem Dafoe, Edward Norton, Saoirse Ronan. Amazing. 
um the story of what is of the, the genre christopher of of cooking that is explored uh like what do you mean like police cooking yeah like, like do you remember uh, the, how it's characterized the, like the there the, the the certain qualifications no yeah. sauces you don't want to, you don't want to make a spill <laughs> are you able to have it on a steak i don't remember all the eat it you know, with the... one yeah yeah on a steakout you have to eat it with one just a fork not a knife so you can like be operating machinery with the other hand or something <laughs> yeah so and and this this scene culminates in in a um in an animated sequence uh, that is again another homage to the animation style of of the new yeah. yorker um and here's the thing kirk i've never been a reader of the new yorker right you know so so there there, there are certain certain references that that wouldn't have necessarily clicked for me mm-hmm. um but boy like I, I i can appreciate um what anderson was doing in in this entire movie of of the highly stylized um, chapters and um, and uh, this ode to an, an era in the past. And Kirk, you and I have talked in the past, um, uh, I believe, about this, about Wes Anderson's uh, essentially, I, I think I said in Grand Budapest Hotel, I may have said this on this podcast, but um, his desire, um, his, his sort of escapism um, that reminds me a little bit of P.G. Wodehouse. Um, yep. P.D. Wodehouse? P.G. P.G. PD? Wodehouse, yep. Uh, um, who, uh, you know, it's interesting. Wodehouse wrote, wrote an era where he easily could have talked about, like, the rise of fascism and, and you know, all sorts of ba- awful yes. things. Yep. Um, and just didn't. Um, uh, he, he, the, it was like this escapism that, that, that he, uh, he was, was, was working a lot of a lot. Yes. He was accused frequently of that. Yep, that's yeah. right. And, and Wes Anderson was a man sort of born out of time that um, one way I think of understanding him is, is um, uh, Ray finds his character in yes. the Grand Budapest yes. Hotel. This, this man who was born a few years too late, who, who was prim and proper and knew how to, how to run a, a certain style hotel. Um, and when the fascists came um, and like, uh, and uh, there's this collision of, of, of the fascist, kind of the fake Nazis, like the, I forget the, what they were called, but um, right. uh, he ends up being executed by them. Um, and uh, like, I feel like that's, that's Wes Anderson. That's a way of understanding him of like his love of, of <laughs> the, the styles, the colors of, of eras gone by uh, is, is almost like his escape. I, I don't know if you'd admit that, if he'd acknowledge that to say that like um, modern, our contemporary society is just, I don't know if you'd say it's decadent or this or that, but like th- there's definitely a wistfulness um, in his uh, both the, the selection of what he wants to tell stories about um, and the way he tells those stories that indicate that like uh, he's a man with a lot of nostalgia and a wistfulness for an era that um, he did not get to live in. Yeah. Um, I, I, you asked me, you asked me what I thought about it like a week ago. And then it was hilarious that you asked me again today if I watch it. <laughs> but I had sent you a brief summation, and then I, I refined it. Um, and I, I, I tweeted, like, after I watched it. And I think this is right. Like, it is so imaginative, prodigiously imaginative. It's recklessly obscure. And that's the thing. of it. He's at the point in his career where he's making – he has a devoted following. Um, obviously, there's, there's a list in Hollywood of people who would, who would, you know, be in his movies for free. I mean, these aren't making a lot of money, 
Um, so he gets to be obscure at this point, and it just doesn't matter. You like it or you don't, and he's okay with that. Um, obsessively finicky set design. He's becoming increasingly stylized, so I, yeah. like, I'm curious to see where he's going. He's just increasingly going away from like the traditional set in the way that other right. directors use sets. So like he used to be, I think it used to sort of be um, a derogatory description of his style to call it dollhouse style. And so now he literally uses dollhouse cutaways like half a dozen times in his movies. Like say, okay, yeah, you know what? You want stylized? I got you stylized right here. Like I'll give you a dollhouse cutaway. I love his dollhouse cutaways, by the way. Oh, they're, they're great. I, I, they're so much fun. Um, yeah, and so he is a man out of time, and 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 I love it. It's it's so great, and it's just what an obscure thing to write an homage to, right? Like this this magazine this magazine urbane, um, magazine that had kind of a mid century twentieth mid twentieth century zenith, um, that had a certain feel and a vibe, a certain kind of poetry, a certain tra kind of travel journalism. And if you knew that flavor and you can recognize it, it's kind of fun to go back and to like poke around in that world for an hour and a half. That's so obscure. <laughs> yeah. But he chose to do it. Yeah. Is it good? I don't know. But he's earned the right to make it. And like um, like I had told you, it I laughed so hard. <laughs> so hard. Um, here's I guess this is the last thing I'll say. Um, here's a director and a and a screenwriter who has mastered the ability of bringing human foibles to life. Yes. Quirk to life. I mean, revels in it and, and loves it. Um, a lot of filmmakers are, are total misanthropes and really, I think, can only kind of show the grubbiness of humanity. Um, and here's a man who loves how quirky humans are, how weird humans are. We make weird art. And there are some weird towns in France. And we have <laughs> weird kinds of cuisine. And it's all incredibly interesting and worth writing about and making a movie about. And I think that's just great. So how's that? That's a good, that's a good um, uh, bit of punctuation. A bit. That's good. Good way to sum it up. Shall we pray? Let's. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have poured upon us the new light of your incarnate word. Grant that this light kindled in our hearts may shine forth in our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. O glorious Lord, your servant Stephen looked up to heaven and prayed for his persecutors. Grant that in all our sufferings here upon earth, we may love and forgive our enemies, looking steadfastly to Jesus Christ, our Lord, who sits at your right hand and intercedes for us, and who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life, in which your son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week, Kirk. Next week. Today's gospel lesson is John 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the, in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kirk, I, I love this passage, and that's not a novel thing to say. Uh, we get historical accounts, which are important. We highlighted this um, a few weeks ago when we talked about how Luke um, doesn't talk talk to us about timeless truths he talks about in a specific time when certain earthly rulers were ruling um that like jesus ministry start started um and uh so we we have those those details uh of the circumstances we have the angel and the shepherds all of which are great um it's really cool that god comes to us where we are um that and that he came to the to, to these shepherds, these, uh, I heard someone this week compare them to like the Jesus, uh, the, the angels did not come to, uh, 
um, like the in crowd, but they came to like a flying J and to like the truckers, the flying, flying J, J right? Like p- picture like love. of all the places in America, they came, they came to like I, a flying J at Iowa and said to the, you know, these, these kind of um, riffraff kind of on the cultural margins and said, Hey, I want you to come see this newborn King. I mean, it's, it's just, I think we come too accustomed to these passages and it, it's just so domesticated. Like we, we have, we picture our kids dressed up in like bathrobes and like with towels on their heads and, and like, it, it's all cute and sweet. Um, and we forget about just how revolutionary it is. And that's great. I, I, I love um, Matthew and Luke, but, but this theological uh, gospel of John um, gives us uh, such richness and, uh, Kirk, I recently listened to a podcast with Hans Borsma on it, and it, he was making an interesting point that probably was not the main point. But as he began to talk, he he was talking about how much he disliked how many scholars, uh, how, how many biblical scholars there are. Um, and, he, and he's just like, yeah, I'm a biblical scholar, but I'm a theologian. It, mm. And what he was saying is that, like, we could pick apart the text and, like, admire the text and 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 make it seem totally detached uh, as this like academic exercise of examining a text in a certain way where John one, we can do that and we can, we can learn from that. But Kirk, this, we need to read devotionally, right? Like, I mean, just John one, one through 18, like to devotionally read this would be like to have a practice, maybe for a week, read this twice a day um, to, to think and meditate on this, um, the mystery of the incarnation, Kirk, which is, is what, what we are celebrating on Christmas. We're not celebrating Jesus' birthday. Um, we're celebrating that like that the second person of the Trinity became flesh and dwelt among us. That this Jesus who was born um, and laid in a manger, um, that he was in the beginning with God. And in fact, um, when we talk about this divine logos, um, this this word um, that John is evoking something really deep here, um, he's evoking this like Jesus is the divine logic of God, um, and, and all like all these philosophers who are seeking for this kind of divine reason, like what what is like this, um, or or just like what is the logic of the universe? It is Jesus, um, and. Um, as we know that that in Genesis, um, any any Jew reading John one um, would would recognize um, in the beginning they would they would think of Genesis one, um, and that God spoke creation into being. And here we have John saying, uh, John the Evangelist, Saint John the Divine, not John the Baptist. We have John the Evangelist saying, um, in the beginning, um, as word was as as creation was being spoken into existence, like calling Jesus the word, that's significant. And so that's, I mean, that's another thing to take away from it. This Jesus is both the divine logic, but also at creation, speaking it into existence. Um, It was Jesus who was doing that um, as well. He's the divine um, logic, but he's also like the action. So a word yes. isn't just a concept. A word is um, an idea that's put into vibration and put into people's ears, right? So, um like there's there's a there's a, um, a powerful um, active sense of it as well, right? Like yeah, so not transcendent logic, like not right. not a not a, a an enlightenment on a mountaintop, right? But but it ripples through creation and speaks creation mm-hmm. into being. Yeah, it's tangible. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and this is often called the prologue to John. And so like all these themes that, that come back again and again in John um, are, are referenced here. Um, and it's interesting. I was reading a commentary by a really good scholar um, earlier today. And, and um, you know, he kind of, uh, he mentioned the, in, the introduction to the commentary he wrote after he wrote the commentary. And so, yeah, it, it, some people have suggested that, that John wrote this after writing the gospel. He's like, yeah, that happens. He says, I don't think it did, but um, this, this uh, pre-existence of, of, of Jesus that we see in verses one and two, um, we see him come back to that in uh, John 17 in this high priestly prayer. Um, so like this light um, he comes back to in John eight, I am the light of the world. Right. Mm. Um, so, so there yeah. are all these things that like he, he introduces here that, that we come back to. So it's actually a really good introduction. You know, this could, could be actually a clickable um, thing where, you know, you click on, on this statement and it pulls you to like chapter eight, where he, where he, um, if we had that technology back then, um, he would have made it clickable, I'm sure. Um, and we see this, uh, this sense of adoption in verse 12, that um, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I mean, this powerful sense that, that we are adopted by God. Um, kind of apart from our own pedigrees, apart from our own works, um, apart from our own merit, that that we are given full adoption as, as sons and daughters of God. And um, Kirk, I've referenced on this podcast several times um, Hebrews, um, the opening of Hebrews, yes. because I love it. I love it so much. Um, and that and it too is a book that opens um, profoundly. Yes. So I'm just going to read uh, the first two verses of, of Hebrews and it, and uh, it, what it does is it, it points to Jesus as like the full revelation of God that we know God because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. Um, and he has revealed himself to us in many ways. You know, we contemporary Christians, we, we know this through scripture and through the church and the sacraments. Right. Um, but, uh, Here's Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So just in those two verses, we see that Jesus, you know, was present at creation um, and, and that uh, God spoke many times and in many ways. Um, we see God at the burning bush. We like we see in the Old Testament the ways that God has spoken to His people, right, through the prophets. But His most full revelation of Himself is in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, in verse seventeen, we have um, for the law was given through Moses; grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This very full revelation of who God is was made clear um, through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say one last thing, Kirk. Um, of course, the uh, the verse that really jumps out at us in light of the incarnation, this this the sense that um, as we say in the creed that he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary. I mean, this is what we're celebrating. It's not just that like um, God came to like hang out with us for a while. Uh, it's that God was born in flesh like us. This this hairy God that you and it, that you and I refer, uh, reference all the time. Yeah. Um, it's not just that like he was far away and now and then he was close for a while and then went away. No, it's that he became like one of us. And um, so verse 14, uh, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And I'm sure everyone who has attended church for more than a year uh, has heard a, a pastor focus on that, uh, that word that's translated as dwelt and, um, and just how inadequate the sense of, of, of dwelling among us, that, that the verb that is used here is, it, it means like he set up, it, he tabernacled with us, this is often um, what, how it's uh, described. Uh, and I, um, and I thought I had uh, an explanation here uh, prepared, um, found in this book. But um, you know, the, this uh, the Old Testament tabernacle, like it's it's that word, um, the sense of the dwelling place of God um, that that they thought of uh, this desert, this tent they set up in the desert. Um, that's the verb that's used. That that like. Jesus, Jesus is God um, setting up his tent and dwelling among us. So it's just inadequate to say he dwelt among us. It's, it's, it, it doesn't capture the fullness of, of that word. And what's interesting is I just looked up um, in Revelation 21, um, when we have this proclamation uh, where there's like the heavens open and we hear this booming voice from heaven, behold, the dwelling place of God is with yes. man. Like, yeah. like that's the same word, this dwelling place of God, like God being with us. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm frustrated that um, I had this prepared and um, now I'm not seeing it. So why don't you talk for a while and then uh, <laughs> I'll interrupt you when I find it. No, no. Hey, hang on. Hang on. I found it. <laughs> that's how, was, how it works, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Though the word pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent among us. Uh, for Greek-speaking Jews and other readers of the Greek Old Testament, um, this term would call to mind the tabernacle where God met with Israel before the temple was built. Um, the sense of God like dwelling in their presence. Um, it's like to say that he dwelt among us is just, it's just an adequate way of, of understanding what it is that God did in the incarnation. So. I'm done now, Kirk. Okay. You can go now. I probably uh, will interrupt you, but go ahead. I, I would be disappointed if you didn't. <laughs> we, uh, it, you said something really interesting um, when you said that uh, this passage is so great, so profound. Um, it's, it's net effect on our hearts is, is somehow greater than the sum of its parts. Yes, it unveils a bunch of, kind of theological nuggets. Um, but 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 there's but there's something else that that, that kind of needs to happen as we read it and and you want to read it multiple times because it's mm. that beautiful and uh, you're what you were describing is something that I'm I've be, started to become aware of and I'm more and more interested in and that's called uh, are you familiar with this lectio divina yeah it's a contemplative way of reading the Bible um, so it's a way of instead of looking at the scriptures as um, kind of a text that kind of needs to be understood. And dissected. Um, it's kind of all, it's basically a way of praying the scriptures mm. um, that that is intended to lead us deeper into um, God's word that way by slowing down, read or sm reading smaller portions of it re re repeatedly, um, reading a passage more than once, kind of savoring it. Um, and Thomas Cramner wrote a wrote a homily on scripture, and at the very end of it, Christopher um, he describes this this very way of reading. Which is exactly, I, 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 
my soul soared as you were describing the effect John 1 has on you. And Thomas Cranmer is describing exactly the same thing. So let me read it. He said, mm. let us ruminate and, as it were, chew the cud that we hmm. may have the sweet juice, spiritual effect, marrow, honey, kernel, taste, comfort, and consolation of them. Right. So he's obviously leaning deep into the metaphor of a good meal. Right. When it when and, and and an agricultural metaphor that is probably lost in a lot of modern readers, which a cow, when a cow chews a cud, that's not the first time it's chewed something. It's returning to it. Right. Like because the way cows digestive system works and they're eating so like like really fibrous stuff that like that just takes a body for forever to break down. So the idea is when you when a cow is chewing a cud, it's returning to the same food after a while which is what we should be doing to the scriptures, right? Mm -hmm. And savoring it. Uh, what, what are the different verbs he used? I, I, I switched tabs here. Um, marrow, honey, taste, comfort, and consolation of them. Not yeah, verbs, but yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That describes exactly, I think, John 1 during this season of the year. So I love that. So thank you for bringing it up, Christopher. That mm. was great. Well, thank you for, for saying much better what <laughs> I should have just had you uh, say it. Because, yeah, like the, our hope is for these 12 days of Christmas to to really um, worshipfully um, contemplate the incarnation. Yeah. Amen. That's what the celebration's about. Yeah. So we I we opened the show with me kind of talking about uh, lessons and carols. And, and this weekend there was full of lessons and carols. Um, the uh, rubrics, not rubrics, the headings, the, the, the headings of the reading. Mm. Yeah, the heading for this reading, this ninth lesson, um, so powerfully encap encapsulates it. Um, Saint John unveils the mystery of the incarnation, mm. um, and there's, I think that phrase gives um the the sense that we are that he knows, Saint John knows he's dealing with holy things, and you read the careful way that he writes it that he knows he's dealing with holy things, right? Um. Incarnation is a fun word, right? And you can teach any child what incarnation means because they learn in schools what carnivores are, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they eat meat, right? So you and I have, have, have enjoyed Martin, Martin Luther's quip that like you, you, you need the hairy God. The hairy God mm -hmm. is the God for you. Um, how about this, right? Like the meat God, right? Um, this is like the God who became meat, right? Who, who, became, who became flesh, um, I, I, this year for the first time ever, of course, I'm bringing it back to music yet again, Christopher, for the first time ever, we are singing Christmas Eve, uh, a new hymn that I've loved for a long time, Come Thou Redeemer of the Earth. Mm. And it's written by St. Ambrose of Milan, a uh, great father of the church who was responsible for the baptism of St. Augustine. Um, and it is, uh, it is a, a really powerful meditation on the, uh, the, the incarnation, but listen, I just, I'm not going to bore everyone with six verses, but there's, there's a particular, a couple of particular ways in which he characterizes it that, that have just struck me um, and have been with me this last week. Begotten of no human will, but of the spirit thou art still, the word of God in flesh arrayed, the savior now to man displayed, Right? The, the sense that um, this infinite of infinite, light of light, very God of very God, um, is now uh, to us in flesh displayed. 
Like in some ways, that's a crude word, and yet it's it's not too crude, right? He is he's here for us to see. Um, oh, equal to thy father now, gird on thy fleshly mantle now, the weakness of our mortal state, with deathless might invigorate. Right. Um, we read Genesis three, the beginning of lessons and carols, right? Of of how um Adam, Adam erred, right? He he, he believed Eve when Eve said, or he was not believed, but like cave. Um, did God really say? And, um, and so we have this first man. It's created in God's own image, um, sinless, um, and yet, and yet ends, in, ends in death. We read the curses at the end of that reading, right? You will eat by the sweat of your brow. And like um, all, all those kind of sad, sad curses that characterize our current life that will end in a grave, right? But like, the weakness of our mortal state with deathless might invigorate. I'm not going to say any more because um, I, it's possible to over-explain, I, I think, the incarnation. Um, but yeah, I like what you say. Like, let us these 12 days um, kind of prayerfully savor it and think on it and just marvel at it. I think, I think that's worthwhile. Also, Christopher, I don't know if you guys have adopted this or if I've shared this with you, but this has become, in addition to Luke 2, we read two things on Christmas morning before we allow the kids to traipse out to the tree. Mm. One is the, uh, the Luke's account, right, of the shepherds mm -hmm. and the angels and, and so forth. Oh, and the other is this. So this has be, been a part of our our pajama 6.48 a.m. Christmas Day ritual, right? Um, but it's, it, it's very much, I think, in all of our, in my children and mine and my wife and in our hearts, it's linked with Christmas morning as well. Last last thing about this. Um, this is and this is a very potentially Anglican specific uh, observation. Um, this passage is linked heavily in a lot of liturgies with O come all ye faithful, because you have in the last verse the climactic, Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this uh, happy morning. Jesu to thee be all glory given. Word, Word of, of the, the Father. Father, now in flesh appearing. And there's a particular English harmonization by Sir David Wilcox that builds up. And uh, Christopher, have you seen the meme of like the seagull, like this, the galactic yes, seagull, yes. like kind yes. of stretching back his neck? This is how Anglicans sing this verse, right? Word of the Father. <laughs> and my kids have loved that meme. For and like, sure. they fairly bellow it when we get to that. And it's, mm. it's just, it's great, man. Word of the Father now in flesh appearing. That is good news to sinners. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Kirk. And I like how through our entire discussion, um, I'm always tempted to over-explain and to point out like why this is good news for sinners, to, to point forward to um, not just to point forward to Jesus living um, for us and then dying for us, um, both of which are crucial to our salvation. Um, but it's good to just revel in in the incarnation and to not jump of jump to like this is good news because of easter right or good yeah. news because of good friday and easter like to just revel in the incarnation for now like we have plenty of time um to contemplate um the crucifixion uh, death uh and, and resurrection and ascension of jesus so the version of god rest you merry gentlemen that you and i know i don't think is the oldest i think the 1982 hymnal tinkered with the lyrics i'm not sure um, the last verse, now to the Lord sing praises, all you within this place, and with true love and charity, each other now embrace this holy tide of Christmas, 
doth bring redeeming grace. I think the original version is, or the English version is, this holy tide of Christmas, all others doth efface. <laughs> Meaning like this is the holiest tide, right? I don't know if that's true. Maybe Easter is the holiest tide. But like, yeah, let's sit with this, right? Yeah. This yeah. holy tide of Christmas doth bring redeeming grace. Yes. Right? We'll get to Calvary, Calvary soon enough, but yes. yeah, the, cra the cradle is enough for now. Quite enough for now. Any final thoughts before we move on to our culture segment? I'm, I am, I, I could talk about this for an hour, but I'm so excited to hear uh, what you have to say about our culture segment. So let's move on to that. <laughs> 